Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host, Springheel Jack, and today I will be bringing you something that I've been very excited to cover for quite some time, and that is one of the most notorious murders, possibly, of the entire United States, definitely of California, and that is the unsolved murder of the Black Dahlia, which coincidentally is a case that remains unsolved to this day, although uh, there are people on the internet that will tell you otherwise. It's a case, there's a lot of conspiracy theory about the laundry list of suspects, because they really have no idea who did it, and they're never going to at this point. No way to prove it, at least. So, let's just get right into it. On January 15th, 22-year-old Elizabeth Short was found brutally murdered. She was severed at the waist and left naked in a vacant lot in the Los Angeles area. She was cut completely in half. The newspapers nicknamed her the Black Dahlia after a film noir murder mystery, The Blue Dahlia, which was released nine months prior to her murder. The Los Angeles Police Department proceeded with a deep and lengthy investigation into Elizabeth Short's death. After sifting through lists of hundreds of suspects, many were false reports and witnesses, uh, and several false murder confessions, the police struggled to make progress in any, any progress at all in the murder case. But the Black Dahlia would quickly become one of Los Angeles' most infamous cases, and the case still remains unsolved 70, if not more, years later. Uh, man, I remember seeing her picture in the paper, not when it happened, obviously, I wasn't alive, but I remember it was some sort of an anniversary, or they thought they'd finally had a break, and I remember seeing her picture in in the uh, the paper and as a little boy, and I was hugely attracted to her, because she is very fucking hot, in my opinion. And she was born on July 29th, 1924, in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. Shortly after she was born, her parents moved the family to Medford, Massachusetts, uh, Cleo Short was her father, and he was making a pretty decent living, believe it or not, designing and building miniature golf courses. Um, it's funny, actually, I hate, well, it's not funny, but a pretty good friend of mine, a guy that hung out around my work that I got to be pretty good friends with, used to install koi ponds before this most recent recession happened, and, uh, he was doing pretty well, too, and it kind of reminded me of this fucking guy who was making a living designing miniature golf courses. Then the Depression hits in, 20, in 1929, and uh, he abandoned his wife, Phoebe Short, and his five daughters, and uh, they don't really know what happened. The family didn't, because they just found his empty car near a bridge, leading authorities to believe that he had jumped into the river below. Interesting. Because he lost his entire ass uh, on the crash. Fucking the family became broke. And it was just assumed that, like so many other people, he had killed himself. So his wife believed her husband to be deceased. She took the five daughters and moved into a smaller apartment in Medford and worked as a bookkeeper to support them. But she was left to deal with the hard times of the Depression all on her own, and had five girls to raise, which was no short feat. Uh, the bookkeeping was the primary job, but she worked multiple jobs. But most of the Shorts family mo money came from public assistance, because there was no other way they would have cut it. 
But one day, Phoebe received a letter from her husband, the presumed dead husband, who instead of uh, killing himself, had just moved to California. So he apologized and he told Phoebe that he wanted her to, to come home, or that he wanted to come home to her. But seeing as she had balls, she refused to ever see him again. I like that. Her daughter Elizabeth, known as Betty, Bet, or Beth, grew up to be a beautiful young woman. Uh, she was always told that she looked older and acted more mature than she really was. She was one of those irritating cunts that would never tell you her age when you asked them. I hate that shit. hate when people do that. How old are you? How old do I look? You look like go fuck yourself. Leave me alone. Although Elizabeth had asthma and lung problems, her friends were still considered... Her friends still considered her to be very lively. Elizabeth loved movies, which were the Shorts family's main source of affordable entertainment, seeing as, like, plays and whatnot were quite a bit more expensive. The theater allowed her an escape from the dreariness of ordinary life. Other people would describe her... Um, she was described by Anne Daughtry, one of her Medford classmates. Bet was a porcelain china doll with beautiful eyes. Think of them as blue, but sometimes they would change depending on the color she wore and become greenish. Sounds like she spent a lot of time staring into her eyes. Mrs. Short was very strict with the other girls. They moved into the triple-decker next to the Visiting Nurses Association about 1937, but Bet was not with them when they moved in. She was at a summer camp for kids who had tuberculosis. Eleanor Kurz, Medford neighbor, and allegedly a friend. Here's another classmate. She was always friendly, never at a loss for words. <laughs> and it wasn't just that she was so pretty, there were a lot of pretty girls around. This, there was something different. She was someone you liked to watch. The kind of girl that boys might sneak looks at but would get tongue-tied if she spoke to you. And she had a, a walk, I guess. It wasn't put on. She always walked that way, even in junior high. I always thought she had, if she had a glass of water on her head, she wouldn't spill a drop. I guess she sauntered. Bet was good, sweet, funny, not stuck up at all, always stopped and chatted, made you feel at ease, and what a walk. The truck drivers and men would stare when she walked across the street. Jesus Christ. It was a wonder there weren't more truck accidents when she walked down, the, down Salem Street. She just looked so graceful, but eye-catching, something to look at. That was said by Dorothy Hernan, a Medford neighbor. Dottie, Elizabeth's sister. Bet and I were going to be movie stars. We were all entranced, entranced with movie stars. Starstruck, if you will. Spent hours talking about movie stars, about going to Hollywood. We performed using the shorts front porch as a stage. Every Friday, as soon as the song sheets came out, we'd pool our money, get the latest sheets, and spend hours singing them. Bet imitated Deanna Durbin. Walked like her, talked like her, and in my eyes sang like her, said Eleanor Kears, another Medford neighbor and friend. Her hair was dark. She liked to be admired. No one had bad thoughts about her. I just liked her. Once you saw Bet Short, you couldn't forget her. Emma Pacoy, Medford neighbor, and I don't think she was her friend. So, when Elizabeth was older, her father Cleo offered her residency with him in California until she was able to find a job. Elizabeth had worked in restaurants and theaters in the past, but she knew she wanted to be a star, and if she moved to California, uh, it was highly likely that, driven by her enthusiasm, she could be. She loved the movies, and she was very excited to go. 
She packed all of her shit and headed to live with her just fucking bum of a father in Vallejo, California in early 1943. It did not take much time before their relationship became extremely strained. Her father would scold her for being lazy, her poor housekeeping, and for her disgusting dating habits. And he eventually uh, kicked her out in the middle of 1943, and she was forced to fend for herself in a state that she was unfamiliar with. Cunt, what a fucking asshole. Throws his daughter out after begging her to move in. Elizabeth applied for a job as a cashier at the Post Exchange at Camp Cook. The servicemen quickly noticed her, and she won the title of Camp Cutie of Camp Cook. Oh, God. In a beauty contest, Elizabeth was emotionally vulnerable. Oh, wait, no, she won the title of Camp Cutie in the Camp Cook Beauty Contest. Sorry. However, Elizabeth was emotionally vulnerable, and despite uh, her father's recent attention, she was desperate for a permanent relationship, uh, preferably sealed in marriage. Word spread that Elizabeth was not an easy girl, which kept her at home instead of on dates most nights. And she became uncomfortable at Camp Cook and left to stay with a girlfriend who lived near Santa Barbara. Elizabeth had her only run-in with the law during this time. On September 23, 1943, she had been out with a group of rowdy friends in a restaurant until the owners just called the police. She was underage at the time, though, so they booked and fingerprinted her but never charged her with anything. She was just drunk, I think. The police officer felt sorry for her and arranged for her to be sent back to Massachusetts, which she went. She did go back to Massachusetts. It was not long, though, before she returned to California, but this time to the wonderful land where your dreams go to fucking die of Hollywood. Hate that place. In Los Angeles, Elizabeth met a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling and thought she fell in love. He was the type of man she'd been searching for and quickly made plans to marry him. However, her plans were halted when Fickling was deployed to Europe. In the the downtime, though, Elizabeth took a few modeling jobs but still felt discouraged with her, air quote, career. And she went back east to spend the holidays in Medford before living with relatives in Miami. She developed a serviceman fetish. Uh, Marriage was still on her mind and fell in love with yet another pilot. Uh, This time, she had slept her way up the chain of command, and his name was Major Matt Gordon. He promised to marry her after he was sent to India. However, Gordon was killed in action in India, leaving Elizabeth heartbroken once again. Elizabeth had a period of mourning where she told others that Matt had actually been her husband and that their baby had died in childbirth. Oh, for fuck's sake. Once she began to recover, she attempted to return to her old life by contacting her Hollywood friends. One of those friends was coincidentally Gordon Fickling, her her former pilot boyfriend, seeing him as a possible replacement for Matt Gordon, who replaced Gordon Fickling. (laughs) Jesus Christ. She began to write to him and met with him in Chicago when he was in town for a few days. Soon, she was soon falling. she She was falling head over heels in love with him yet again. Oh, my God. Elizabeth agreed to join him in the wonderful, charming city of Long Beach, California, before she moved back to California to to continue pursuing her dream of being a movie star. Elizabeth left Los Angeles on December 8th, 1946, to take a bus to San Diego. Before she left, Elizabeth had supposedly been worried about something. Elizabeth had been staying with Mark Hansen, 
who said the following when he was questioned by the police that while she was living at the Chancellor apartment, she came back to your house and got mail. Mark Hansen said, I didn't see her, but she was sitting there one night when I came home with his wife about 5.36 o'clock. She was sitting there crying and saying she had to get out of there. She was crying about being scared, one thing or another. I don't know. So, while she was in San Diego, she befriended a young woman named Dorothy French. Dorothy was a counter girl at the Aztec Theater and had found Elizabeth sleeping in one of the seats after an evening show. Classy. Elizabeth told Dorothy she left Hollywood because finding a job as an actress was difficult, if not impossible, and the actor strikes that were going on at the time made it that much tougher. You'd have to be in fucking SAG to... Oh my god. Dorothy felt sorry and uh, offered her place to stay at, at her mother's home for a few days. Wow, that was nice. Uh, but in reality, being the considerate and... Oh my god. She... My like for Elizabeth Short ends at physical good looks, but she's a fucking asshole. In reality, she ended up sleeping on her mother's couch as a perfect stranger for over a month. Without paying, of course. Tell me she was, like, blowing her dad. Like, come on. <sighs> she did little housework for the French family and continued her late-night partying and dating habits. One of the men she became enamored with was Robert, known as Red... Manly. That's a good last name, I suppose. I feel like he's the type of guy that would explain to you at length about how he is the alpha male. And he was a salesman from Los Angeles who had a pregnant wife at home. Manly admitted that he was attracted to Elizabeth, yet claimed he never slept with her. I'm sure his wife was in the other room when they asked him that. But the two of them continued to see each other on and off for a few weeks. And Elizabeth asked him for a ride back to Hollywood, which he agreed and he picked her up from the French household on January 8th, 1947. He paid for her hotel room for that night, and then went to party with her. When the two of them returned to the hotel, he slept on the bed, and Elizabeth slept in a chair. Horseshit! Bullshit! Manley had an appointment in the morning of January 9th and returned to the hotel to pick Elizabeth up around noon. She told him that she was returning to Massachusetts, but first needed to meet her married sister at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. So this chump, Manly, drove her there, yet did not stick around. He had an appointment at 6.30 p.m. and did not wait for Elizabeth's sister to arrive. When Manly saw Elizabeth last, she was making phone calls in the hotel lobby. Manly and the hotel employees were the last people to see Elizabeth Short alive. As far as the Los Angeles Police Department could tell... Only Elizabeth's killer saw her after January the 9th, 1947, because she was missing for six days from the Biltmore Hotel before her body was found in a vacant lot on the morning of January 15th, 1947. January 15th, 1947 was cold, dreary, especially in the morning. And uh, either way, Betty... Bess Burstsinger, a local housewife, left her home on Norton Avenue in the Limart Park section of this city. I have no fucking idea where that is. Uh, headed for a shoe repair shop, and she took her three-year-old daughter with her. So always, you leave him at home, and the one time you take it out is when you find the fucking severed-in-half dead bitch. As the two of them walked up the street and approached the corner of Norton and 39th, they passed many vacant lots and uh, bordering the sidewalk. 
When World War II struck, development had slowed in the City of Angels. Because the war had ended only a year and a half prior, construction was slow to start up once again, seeing as most of the men were fucking dead. Jesus Christ. What do they want? This left the lot, most of them, looking abandoned and eerie, which already put Betty on edge that morning. While Betty walked along the sidewalk, she noticed something white among the weeds. But she didn't think much of it at first, as many people throw trash in vacant lots in Los Angeles, as is the custom. And as she glanced at the object, she initially thought somebody had thrown away a store mannequin. See, it goes back to my theory about burying the mannequin in your front yard in the middle of the night, just to see. It seemed like an odd object to throw away, and it was even stranger that the mannequin had been uh, separated in half. Becky continued to walk forward, yet something drew her attention back to the mannequin. Under closer inspection, she realized that the mannequin was not a mannequin at all. In fact, it was actually a woman who had been severed in half. Betty gave a panic scream and led her daughter away from the gruesome sight. She quickly rushed to a nearby house to call the police. So there's nothing I love more in the morning as hysterical woman banging on my door begging to use my phone. I love that. Officer Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald arrived to the scene within minutes when they noticed the naked body of a woman who had been cut in half. They were able to confirm Betty Bersinger's story and immediately called for backup. The Los Angeles Police Department noted that the woman's body seemed to have been posed. The woman was lying on her back with her arms raised over her shoulders and her legs were spread in a twisted display of seductiveness. That's disturbing for whoever wrote that. It says a lot about them. That quote, There were cuts and abrasions all over her body, and her mouth had been sliced to extend her smile from ear to ear. What do they call that? The Kilkenny smile? Something. I don't think that's what it is, but they call it something. Investigators believed that she had been tied down and tortured for several days due to the rope burns on her wrist, ankles, and throat. Her naked body had been cleanly sliced in half just above the waist. Uh, they covered her with some fabric for human decency. There was no blood present on the woman's body, however, and there was none on the grass beneath her either. Investigators determined she must have been killed somewhere else, cleansed of all blood, and then dumped in the vacant lot overnight. That's where it gets weird. Detective Lieutenant Frank, Lieutenant Jesse Haskins described the condition of the body when he first arrived at the crime scene as, as this. The body was lying with his head towards the north, the feet towards the south, the left leg was five inches west of the sidewalk, the body was lying face up, and the severed part was jogged over about ten inches, the upper half of the body from the lower half, and there was a tire track right up against the curbing. And there was what appeared to be a possible bloody heel mark in this tire mark. And on the curbing, which is a very low, there was one spot of blood, and there was an empty paper cement sack lying in the driveway, and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought there from some other location. The body was clean and appeared to have been washed. While the LAPD had to frequently investigate homicides, I use uh, investigate in huge quotation marks as well, not to disparage the perpetually honest and well-intentioned LAPD, but they fucked some terrible homicides over, especially around this time period. The horrible nature of this case made it a top priority, though, because it was in the newspaper, and it was not just every day that a woman was found severed in two next to the sidewalk, especially one that looked like this. Captain Donahoe 
<laughs> That's unfortunate. Captain John Donahoe. <laughs> Captain John Donahoe assigned two senior detectives to the case, and that would be Detective Sergeant Harry Hanson. <laughs> the fuck is it with, with these names, man? Det Detective Sergeant Harry Hanson and Detective Finnis Brown. Ooh. By the time Hanson and Brown... <laughs> Hanson and Brown sounds like they're mainlining at a comedy club. Not mainlining, Jesus Christ. That would be behind the comedy club. Not headlining. <laughs> Man, I'm on a roll. They received their orders and they arrived at the scene. News of the gruesome murder had already spread, however. And the crime scene was teeming with reporters, photographers, and a crowd of curious onlookers hoping to get a peek under the cloth. Hansen was furious that civilians and stupid-ass officers were trampling on the crime scene and destroying the evidence. So he ordered the public to immediately clear the area and get the fuck out of his crime scene. While the detectives investigated the crime scene, the woman's body was transported to the Los Angeles County Morgue. Where everyone is also honest. The LAPD wanted to identify her as quickly as possible, but not, not at the expense of their honesty. They wanted to make sure that they identified her properly before they released the information. They lifted her fingerprints and needed to safely send them to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. However, severe winter storms at the time had the potential to de delay the identification process for up to a week. And that was far too much time to waste with a homicide investigation, especially one of this caliber. So I found some truly fucking horrible pictures from the crime scene. Uh, they are... Well, there's no blood, so they're not as bad as you would think. But they definitely posed her a very specific way. And they definitely cut her fucking face. And she did have a full bush. Which they also have in the police file, apparently. Oof. Harrowing. Harrowing is what they are. They're gross pictures. But, interesting. So a man named Warden Woolard, assisting the managing editor of the Herald Express, was willing to assist the honest LAPD in their investigation. The newspaper had recently purchased new technology called a sound photo machine. Woodlard, Woolard believed he could use the sound photo equipment to send the woman's fingerprints to the FBI. When Woolard spoke to LAPD Captain Honest Jack Donahoe about his idea... It was promptly set in motion. When this is when people volunteered to help the police, probably volunteered for jury duty too. When the fingerprints were first transmitted to the feds, they could not be read. Russ Lapp, a Herald Express photographer, suggested that they reverse the lab and use the prints as negatives before sending them to the FBI again. Lapp also blew the prints up to eight by ten, which made them large enough for the FBI specialist to clearly read them. With these legible prints, the FBI identified the victim as 22-year-old. I can't believe that it's that fucking young. 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. As far as they knew, she had last resided in Santa Barbara and worked as a clerk at Camp Cook. It's probably the last time her fucking fingerprints were taken. While the FBI was busy identifying Elizabeth Short, her body was being examined thoroughly in the honest LAPD, LAPD's coroner office. 
The autopsy revealed multiple lacerations to her face, to her head, but there was no sperm present on the body because the killer had washed the body clean. Uh, it's presumed that she was sexually assaulted. There were numerous cuts in a crisscross pattern all over her pubic area, as if uh, someone was mad at her for her vagina, and her pubic hair had been removed by hand. Wow. In the picture, I told you she had a full bush, so I, I shudder to think what it was before. Most of the damage seemed to have been post-mortem, though, including the severing of the victim's body at the waist. The official cause of death was listed as hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. Weird. So she was scared to death and uh, smiled cut to death. Hemorrhage and shock. That's a dumb way of saying that. Hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. So she... Her shock killed her because she was cut on the face and the hemorrhage was because she got a concussion? That Okay, that makes sense, but... Shock due to lacerations of the face. That's like... Death as a result of... Suffer, a heart attack as a result of the knife in his chest. What the fuck? There's the honest LAPD yet again. Mm. The Herald Express had breaking information on the case, and the honest LAPD had identified their victim. However, the symbiotic relationship between the paper and the LAPD began to shift. Good old Willie Randolph Hearst, owner of the Herald Express, was incredibly wealthy and had stable reporters who discovered leads and valuable evidence in the Elizabeth Short case. He was willing to share the crucial information to the LAPD if they paid the price. I love that fucking guy. It's just such a kick in the teeth when his daughter was photographed robbing that bank. Hearst proposed the Herald Express would continue investigating clues and would be granted exclusives, and the LAPD would have access to all the information the reporters uncovered. While LAPD Captain Honest Jack Donahoe was not especially happy with these terms, he was desperate for information on the case and took the offer. A man named Wayne Sutton a Herald Express rewrite man, was assigned to locate Elizabeth Short's mother, good old Phoebe Short, in Medford, Massachusetts. Sutton quickly found Phoebe and was then instructed to give her the news of her daughter's death. Yikes. However, Sutton knew that he needed to obtain the information about Elizabeth Short first, because she would be too shaken up, hysterical even, to tell him the information if he initially broke the horrible news to her. So Sutton received information about Elizabeth Short by feigning that she had won a beauty contest in Los Angeles. That's, you're a fucking terrible person. Phoebe loved to talk about her beautiful daughter, Hall, and was willing to tell Sutton everything he wanted to know. Once he had received his information, Sutton's boss instructed him to tell Phoebe the brutal truth. Jesus. Phoebe Short actually wasn't an unattractive lady either. She's quite pretty. Phoebe Short didn't believe him. She could not fathom that her daughter was dead, let alone murdered, let alone cut in half. Uh, the honest LAPD had to contact local Medford cops and send them to the short residence to tell Phoebe the story in person before she would accept the news. Oof. Yikes, man. That would be that first step of the grieving process, the denial. I know it well. The Herald Express was soon swamped with anonymous reports, tips, and whatnot, what have you, some of which actually proved to be fucking useful for once. One anonymous caller told the reporters that Elizabeth had kept photo albums of herself and her friends in a trunk, but the trunk had gone missing during shipment from Chicago to Los Angeles. 
However, the Herald Express was determined to relocate it. They found it at the Greyhound Express station in downtown L.A. And they'd finally be able to illustrate Elizabeth, Elizabeth Short's life with story photos of herself, her friends, and all the dudes she was fucking, which was a considerable amount, because they were all photographed. On January 17, 1947, a photograph of Elizabeth Short appeared on the front page of the Herald Express. The paper had referred to her as the Black Dahlia, a name that is still sticking to her 70 years later. I don't count very well, but 70, 80, thereabouts, almost 80. Fuck it. You know what I mean. I don't count. Can't count. Don't do it. Don't believe in it. It's for communists and shit. It was common practice for newspapers to give interesting names to female murder victims and their killers during the 1940s. Elizabeth Short was no exception. The Los Angeles Times reported that customers at a drugstore in Long Beach dubbed Elizabeth Short the Black Dahlia as a joke in reference to the film noir murder mystery The Blue Dahlia, which was released nine months prior to her murder. Elizabeth Short had frequented the drugstore when she first lived in Long Beach, and the customers remembered her for her black hair, black garments, fair complexion, and uh, relatively easygoing morals with sexuality. Before the name Black Dahlia cut on, though, Elizabeth Short's killing was dubbed the very confusing titles of Werewolf Murder. Also, uh, the Sex Fiend Murder, I think, because I, I didn't know who it was when I first saw that. However, a reporter, likely either Bevo Means, Agnes Underwood, or Jack Smith, found out about the nickname the Black Dahlia, and the newspapers adopted the nickname immediately afterwards. And the case of the Black Dahlia was officially born. Even after Black Dahlia became more prominent, some dumb fuck sources still referred to her, her or referred to her killer as the werewolf. Desperately referred to, I would say. They have a postmodern. Oh god, that's terrible. They have this picture, right, where she looks good. Is this? And it says this is a photograph of an unidentified teenage girl found slain in a vacant lot on Norton Avenue near Coliseum Avenue. Picture was taken in death, but with marks of violence removed. Jesus Christ! Authorities today were searching into the love life of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. This is the next one. It has her looking all sexy. Uh, 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, victim of werewolf murder, whose romance had changed her, according to her friends, from an innocent girl to a man-crazed delinquent known as the Black Dahlia. That's how it goes, isn't it? Uh, they have another one of her looking even better. It says, here's a recent picture of Elizabeth Short, age 22, victim of the werewolf murder, known as the Black Dahlia because of her dark, mysterious beauty and her penchant for black dresses. Okay, well, they managed to include both of them. Another one of her with, uh, I think, Finkley, one of the military guys. Beautiful. Elizabeth Short, age 22, victim of the werewolf murderer, is shown in this photo with the late, oh, it's Matt Gordon, my mistake, an army major, who said, or who she said was her husband. The picture was found among the contents in the girl's trunk. That would be the trunk that Willie Hurst needed to locate desperately. Uh, okay, this is the sex fiend one. It has her mugshot, and it's, uh, not the best picture. Fingerprints identified the attractive victim of a brutal sex fiend murder. What does that mean? Found Wednesday in a vacant lot near Norton Avenue. Uh, and let's just this just be a testimony to how wrong the media can get it. Elizabeth Short, 22, formerly of Santa Barbara. 
the Federal Bureau of Investigation informed the Times yesterday. The end. That's that's it. This is, must have been one of those. Uh, that is not one of the ones that closed down. That is the Los Angeles Times, which is still around today, and so on and so forth. They had a bunch of different stupid ass names. They had wanted posters as well. Five foot six, one hundred and eighteen pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive. Um, fingernails chewed down. <laughs> Subject found brutally murdered. Wanted information. Identified herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short. Uh, may have seen her. May have. Oh my god. Okay. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. On leaving, she went into the lobby of the Biltmore and was last seen there. Inquiry should be made at all places she was seen frequenting hotels, motels, apartment houses, cocktail bars, lounges, clubs, jazz clubs. <laughs> Oh, my God. That's a bit of a biased one, I think. That was the honest chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. So this was all going on at the same time. People were writing uh, interesting articles about her. But the investigation, the investigators of the Black Dahlia case had two main theories on Elizabeth Short's killer. One was that Elizabeth had never met the dude before, uh, not until her death. And the other theory was that she definitely had known him beforehand. The police were convinced by the latter option due to the mutilations present on Elizabeth's corpse, specifically on her on her uh, vagina, which were signs of personal vendetta usually, or personal hatred or resentment. You don't attack somebody's genitals traditionally, not like this, not post-mortem, unless you hold something against them. FBI crime profiler and author John Douglas believed the killer must have known Elizabeth well and had some sort of an emotional attachment to her. The horrific violence inflicted on the body uh, and leaving the body on public display would indicate that the killer wanted her to be seen by the world for the wrongdoings that he believed she had done to him. So, legs spread, arms in the air, uh, damage to the pubic area, and... A big-ass fake smile carved in. It says it's very, very uh, symbolic. In another attempt to analyze the killer's mind, the Herald Express sought out Dr. Paul Day Rivers' expert opinion on the case. How do you become an expert on cutting bitches in half and leaving them in vacant lots? That's what I want to know. What what makes you the expert on that? Experience? De River wrote a series of articles for the paper suggesting that the killer was in fact a sadist who wanted to dominate Elizabeth Short. He suggested that... During the killing episode, he had an opportunity to pump up effect from two sources. From his own sense of power and in overcoming the resistance of another. He was the master and the victim was the slave. Sounds like, uh, desperately trying to make that a BDSM thing. I understand that murdering somebody isn't a BDSM thing, but not necessarily. Can be. Um... Yeah, obviously he wanted to overpower her or he wouldn't have cut her in half. It's like... Um, but anyone can be driven to murder if provoked. It's not, I don't think it, it was primarily... I don't know. I don't think it would have been... This guy seemed like he was grasping at the worst possible straws. DeRiver also hinted that the killer might have been a necrophiliac, he says. It must also be remembered that sadists of this type have superabundance of the curiosity and are liable to spend much of their time with their victims after the spark of life has flickered and died. Yeah, I don't think so. 
But maybe. Who knows? On January 23rd, 1947, the examiner received a call from a man claiming to be the guy that murdered Elizabeth Short. He told the editor, J.H. Richardson, that he was upset by the way the story was being told in the papers. He offered to mail Elizabeth Short's belongings to the paper to prove his claim. No shit. The examiner received a package and letter formulated from magazine clippings from an anonymous sender the following day. And this package included Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, business card, photograph, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover. Mark Hansen, who had allowed Elizabeth Short to stay with him in the past, became suspect number one in the murder. And uh, this cute arts and crafts project note says, I will give up in Dahlia Killing if I get ten years. Don't try to find me. What? Sounds like he was a bit challenged when it came to spelling and grammar. Elizabeth Short's handbag and shoe were found in a trash can on the same day that the examiner received the package. The items were found only a few miles away from the vacant lot where Elizabeth's body had been dumped initially. The items were identified by Robert M. Red Manley before the LAPD uh, before the LAPD no longer saw him as a suspect. This could have been a major mistake on the killer's part. He likely did not assume the items would be linked to the Elizabeth Short murder, yet they were. The location of the items revealed that the killer was most likely within walking distance of both vacant lot and the area where the belongings had been dropped. Or he drove his car for a couple miles, realized, oh, fuck me, I got her shit in the back. Tossed it out the door. But that would be too many moving parts? Maybe not. Soon enough, more letters began pouring into the various newspapers' office in Los Angeles, including the Herald Express and the Examiner, and these letters had messages formulated from newspaper and magazine clippings just the same. And they were consistent with the appearance of the first letter that the police received with Elizabeth Short's belongings. One of these letters to the Herald Express read, I will give up in Dahlia killing. If I get ten years, don't try to find me. I'm going to send one of these to the fucking Los Angeles Times. Just It's just going to say, like, Black Dahlia year. And then, just, I bet that makes the news. It's like giving a handgun to a five-year-old. You don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to make the news. The LAPD received many anonymous tips, mainly in the form of calls for Elizabeth Short's case. However, most of them seemed to be bullshit. Surprise, surprise. Like most things in this city, they were fucking fake. As are most people. The incoming letters were handed from the newspaper offices to the LAPD. Some of these letters were also received by the Los Angeles District Attorney, who then directed the letters to the LAPD with haste. The letters seemed to be from the murderer, and it seemed as if they were trying to taunt the LAPD detectives. Hey, hey, look at my dick. Look at my dick. His messages were often convoluted and confusing, causing the detectives to spend much time trying to decipher them. Everything sent to the honest LAPD, including the letters... Elizabeth Short's security card and photographs had been rinsed with gasoline. That, I didn't even know, worked. So the forensic examiners were unable to lift fingerprints off the evidence. No fucking way. Many of the letters also seemed to give false information. Based on the way the investigators deciphered them, they were not very helpful in solving the Black Dahlia case. Hey, uh, look at my dick. I just imagine this guy in a trench coat like fucking out of the corner of your eye, shaking his dick at you, and then you look, and he's gone. That's the Black Dahlia Killer taunting the LAPD in my mind. So, hey, look at my dick. Due to the way that Elizabeth Short was 
cleanly cut in two, the LAPD was convinced that her murderer had some sort of medical or butchery training. This is an FBI letter on February 25th, 1947. The manner in which Elizabeth Short's body was dissected has indicated the possibility that the murderer was a person somewhat experienced in medical work. The honest LAPD has undertaken to develop suspects among the medical and dental schools in the area, as well as among students who have anything to do with human anatomy. Uh, The University of Southern California complied with the LAPD and sent them a list of their medical students. This is evident by the FBI letter on March 6, 1947. Reference is is made to your letter of February 25, 1947, submitting a list bearing the names of students enrolled in the medical school of the University of Southern California and requesting that these names be searched through the criminal, uh, whatever that word is, the files of the identification division. However, the first suspected arrested for Elizabeth Short's murder was not one of the medical students. His name was Robert Manley. Manley was one of the last people to see old Liz alive because his alibi for January 14th and 15th were solid as fuck and because he passed two lie detector tests. The honest LAPD had no choice but to let him go. If I... My God, I've known somebody that beat a lie detector test. It's not hard. Due to the complexity of the Black Dahlia case, the original investigators treated every person who knew Elizabeth Short as a suspect, including her father. By June 1947, cops had processed and eliminated a list of 75 suspects. By December of 1948, the detectives had considered 192 suspects in total. About 60 people confessed to the Elizabeth Short murder, but only 22 people were considered viable suspects by the honest Los Angeles district attorney. Uh, Some of these men are still on the current suspect list. A guy named Mark Hansen. Dr. George Hodel, whose family has the most obnoxious story about that guy. Um, Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly, and I believe that's it. While some of the original 22 suspects were discounted, new suspects have also arisen. The following suspects have been discussed by various authors and experts and are presently considered to be the main suspects for the Black Dahlia murder. And there's a fuckload of them, and I'm going to punish you with some of them. Prepare to be annoyed. Suspect number one is a man named Walter Bailey. Walter Bailey was a Los Angeles surgeon who lived one block south of the vacant lot where Elizabeth Short's body had been dumped. He moved from this location when he left his wife in October of 1946. During January 47, Bailey's estranged wife still lived with him. Bailey's daughter, Barbara Lindgren, was a friend of Elizabeth Short's sister, Virginia, and brother-in-law, Adrian West. Barbara had been the maid of honor at Virginia and Adrian's wedding. Bailey died in January 1948, and his autopsy showed that he'd been suffering from degenerative brain disease. Bailey's widow claimed that Bailey's bitch, uh, Dr. Alexandra Partrika, had known a terrible secret about him, which was why he listed his, listed his mistress as his main beneficiary. The LAPD never considered Bailey a suspect in the Black Dahlia case. However, many theorists believe he could be linked to Elizabeth Short's murder due to the man's medical expertise. Detective Harry Hansen 
told the 1949 grand jury that the killer had to be a top medical man and a fine surgeon. Bailey was 67 years old at the time that Elizabeth Short's death had happened and had no known history of violence or criminal activity. He likely had not even known or met Elizabeth Short, even though his daughter was a friend to Virginia Short. A guy named Larry Harnish was a copy editor and writer for the Los Angeles Times. He started studying the Black Dolly case in 1996. A little late to the party, brother. He eventually concluded that Bailey could have been Elizabeth Short's killer. While some critics of this theory say that Bailey would have been way too old and feeble for the crime, the original investigators believed the body could have been cut in half for easier transport. Harnisch believed that this would have made it possible for Bailey to transport and dispose of Elizabeth Short's body. Harnisch also believed that Bailey's neurological deterioration could have contribute, contributed to his violent acts against Elizabeth. That makes sense to me so far. He claimed that neurological conditions were known to elicit violent behavior in otherwise calm individuals. That's like most serial killers have damage to their frontal lobe. Interesting. Something to, th something to think of. Something to think about. Excuse me. Harnisch contacted John E. Douglas, retired FBI profiler, to help devise his theory. Douglas advised two things to Harnisch. The first was that the public location dumping site had to have some significance as the killer could have just as easily dumped the victim's body privately, or in the desert, or anywhere else. The vacant lot was only one block away from uh, the property owned by Ruth Bailey, Walter Bailey's estranged wife. The second was that the facial lacerations indicated the killer had some sort of a personal anger towards the victim. Elizabeth Short had a period of time where she would falsely tell others she had a child who died from a tragic accident. Uh, Walter Bailey had a son who was struck by a car and killed when he was 11. His son's birthday was January 13th. Elizabeth Short's body was discovered on the 15th, and Harnish believed that Bailey could have been trying to compensate for his son's death, though how I do not know. Some theories have suggested that the terrible secret Bailey's side bitch knew was that Bailey had been performing abortions on women, which in the 1940s was a crime. However, there's no evidence of this being true. It's just a theory. Other theorists believe Bailey's side bitch, Dr. Alexandra Partiaka, could have been the one to kill Elizabeth Short. There is little evidence to support this theory other than the ties to Ruth and Walter Bailey. I like that a lot more. I like that she uh, she killed him. I like that idea. I'm going to go over a few more, but these are reaching. Most of them are reaching. Number two is Norman Chandler. Norman Chandler was the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. In Donald's, Donald Wolf's book, The Mob, The Mogul, and The Murder That Transfixed Los Angeles, Chandler was accused of being involved in Elizabeth Short's murder. In a complicated scenario involving multiple perps, Wolf claimed that Chandler knocked up Elizabeth Short while she was working as a call girl for someone named Brenda Allen, the notorious Hollywood madam. Oh, I think that's the one that Charlie Sheen foiled. Maybe. Wolf claimed this led Chandler to order the gangster Bugsy Siegel to murder Elizabeth Short. I don't think Chandler's going to order Bugsy Siegel to do anything. However, the Los Angeles DA uh, and their files plainly state that Elizabeth Short was not a hooker and was not pregnant when she died. So, uh, suck my dick, Donald Wolf. Your theory's bullshit. Alright, Leslie Dillon. 27-year-old Leslie Dillon worked as a bellhop, was an aspiring writer, and had previously been a mortician's assistant. 
1948, Dylan wrote to LAPD psychiatrist Dr. Paul De River about the Black Dahlia case. Dylan, writing from Florida, told De River that he had heard about Elizabeth Short's case from a true detective magazine where De River spoke on the case. He wanted to hear De River's theories on the case, and because he had an interest in sadism and sexual psychopaths and wanted to write a book on the subjects, Dylan never confessed to the murder. He just insisted. He insisted. Um, he was. Wait, what? He just insisted to his friend that he was Elizabeth Short's killer. I guess he wanted to be this. The what? Okay, so DeRiver and Dylan wrote back and forth from Florida to Los Angeles. DeRiver started to believe that Connors was not a real man. He believed Dylan himself had murdered Elizabeth Short and had developed his friend Connors as a figment of his imagination to cope with the gruesome act. In December of 1948, Dylan agreed to meet with DeRivers, and DeRivers offered three potential locations, Phoenix, L.A., Las Vegas. Dylan expressed reservations about L.A. and chose to meet DeRiver in Las Vegas instead. DeRiver and an undercover, honest LAPD officer, Sergeant John O'Mara. That name is familiar. O'Mara. Let me see. I'm going to look that up. Jack O'Mara. I actually think Jack O'Mara was the guy that took down Mickey Cohen. What a trip. Okay, so they met Dylan in Vegas. DeRiver interrogated Dylan and O'Mara acted as his bodyguard. <laughs> Sounds about right. And he was a sergeant. So I... That's a small world shit. DeRiver recorded his interviews with Dylan. And the following is a segment transcribed of one of the recordings. DeRiver says, What do you think the killer did with the hair he shaved off her pubic parts? I think the killer, such as he was, would probably have thrown the hair into the toilet and flushed it. What do you think a killer such as he would do with a piece of flesh with a tattoo on it after he cut it out of her thigh? Well, I think he probably would have thrown it down the toilet and flushed it. This following is from another recording, transcribed as such. You're the one who murdered Elizabeth Short. Dr. DeRiver, the trouble with this theory is that you first reach your own conclusions about the case and then you try to dig up things to prove that your conclusions are correct. What do you think I am, a child? What do you mean by talking to me that way? I'm a person who has been around... The undercover officer also remembered Dylan talking about bleeding a body prior to embalming by making an incision on the upper thigh, inserting a tube to drain the blood. You could read about that in a mummification book, though. That's not... not that hard to figure out. Dylan had this medical experience when he worked as a mortician's assistant. Dylan had hoped to return to California with DeRiver and O'Mara to show them his friend, Jeff Connors. When they arrived in San Francisco, they searched for Jeff Connors, but had difficulty locating him. It was then that the honest LAPD confronted Dylan, trapping him with the purpose of getting a confession out of him. Dylan eventually offered the police intimate details about Elizabeth Short's murder that the investigators had even struggled to explain. Dylan had been held against his will at a hotel near L.A. and had been denied his constitutional rights. An undercover officer handcuffed Dylan and officially took him to custody at Highland Park uh, on January 10th, 1949. Detectives Finnis Brown and Harry Hansen questioned Dylan the evening of January 10th. The following night, January 11th, the LAPD received a call from San Francisco police saying that they had found Jeff Connors, but his real name was Artie Lane. Lane had lived in L.A. at the time of Elizabeth Short's murder and worked as a maintenance man at Columbia Studios. 
which was a favorite hangout place for Elizabeth. There has been some speculation that Artie Lane and Leslie Dillon could have been the same men, but the LAPD never confirmed that story. By the end of 1949, Finnis Brown was no longer interested in Dillon. The LAPD concluded that Dillon was most likely in San Francisco when the murder took place. However, they could not conclusively place him in San Francisco. In fact, the police could not account for Dillon's whereabouts between January 9th and January 15th, 47 at all. And those were the days when Elizabeth Short had been considered missing. Dillon later filed a $100,000 claim against the city of Los Angeles for how he was treated in the case. Yet, the lawsuit was dropped when the Honest LAPD discovered that he was wanted by Santa Monica police for robbing a hotel while working as a bellhop there. Jesus. The scandal surrounding Dillon and DeRiver's involvement in the Black Dahlia investigation aided in triggering a 1949 grand jury investigation into Elizabeth Short and the police cover-up and corruption in Los Angeles. Which, um... Despite the fact that I refer to them as the honest LAPD, they're not. The LAPD has always had problems with this, and uh, they probably will for this foreseeable future, because that's what they're known for. <sighs> so the grand jury thing... The possibility of a police cover-up in the Black Dahlia case is most evident. The 1949 grand jury report found that the LAPD had corrupt officers operating with jealousy and secrecy. This resulted in a complete shakedown of how the LAPD was being operated. It's never been publicized whether or not the LAPD knows who killed Elizabeth Short and is still covering up the information, yet it's highly likely. As they do. As is the custom. Let's see. So the LAPD was definitely another... Let's see. Oh, this fucking Hodor, whatever the fuck this guy's name is. This dude drives me... His kid drives me crazy. George Hodor! Hodel. Uh, that's Dr. George Hodel. First came under police scrutiny in October of 1949 when he was accused of molesting his 14-year-old daughter, Tamar Hodel. It's an unfortunate name for old Tamer. Three witnesses testified at the trial where they that they testified at the trial saying that they had seen Hodel having sex with his daughter. That's fucking foul, but that's not murdering somebody. Hodel was later acquitted of the sexual what? Later acquitted of the sex assault charges in December. The molestation case led the LAPD to include Hodel in the suspect list for the Black Dahlia case. Why though? The LAPD put Hodel under surveillance from February to March, and they installed two microphones in his home, which were monitored by 18 detectives, 18 honest detectives that are claiming their time properly. They wanted to see if Hodel would make any comments to insinuate that he was involved in Elizabeth Short's murder. Most of the transcripts are dull, uh, first with Hodel having sex, berating his secretary, and talking about money problems. Uh, however, on February 19, 1950, there is something terrifying in the recording. It's a woman screaming. Woman screaming again. It should be noted the woman uh, wasn't heard before the scream at all. Later the same day, Hodel was recorded talking to his confidant. I realized there was nothing I could do. I put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired at 12.59. They thought there was something fishy anyway. Now uh, they may have figured it out. Killed her. 
That's uh, it was snippets. Surveillance routinely continued, catching a highly incriminating statement, and that was as follows: Supposing I uh, did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to me, my secretary anymore, because she's fucking dead. Wow. The secretary referred to in the transcript was Ruth Spaulding, who died from an apparent drug overdose. Due to Hodel's comments in the recordings, he was investigated for her murder. He had been present when the secretary died and had burnt some of her belongings before the police were called, causing the Spaulding case to be dropped due to a lack of evidence. However, documents were later found that indicated Spaulding had been planning to blackmail Hodel. She was potentially about to come forward about Hodel intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for lab tests, medical treatments, and unnecessary prescriptions. I fucking knew it. Shady-ass doctors. Hodel's, Hodel's son, the loudmouth former LAP, LAPD homicide issue with fucking daddy issues that expressed themselves, uh, Steve Hodel believes Elizabeth Short may have been one of the victimized patients. Uh, this is just me jerking off. This is like H.H. H. Holmes' grandson or great-grandson writing a book saying that H.H. H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper. For fuck's sake. Lieutenant Frank Jemison of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office wrote the report to the grand jury dated September, September, <laughs> February 20th, 1951. And in the report, he noted that Lillian Denorak, who had lived... With George Hodel, identified Elizabeth Short as one of his side bitches. She also said that Hodel had spent some time around the Biltmore, where Elizabeth had been dropped off before she went missing. Tamar Hodel stated that her mother, Dorothy Hodel, told her that her father had been out partying on the night of the murder and stated, they'll never be able to prove that I did that murder. Well, that's pretty incriminating. The LAPD received a photograph of a nude Elizabeth and a nude model from Hodel's personal effect. The model was identified as Matty Comfort, <laughs> who said that she knew nothing about Hodel being associated with the Black Dahlia. Rudolph, Rudolph Wathers, Walters, who had been acquainted with Elizabeth and Hodel, stated that he had never seen the two of them together. Had he ever seen them separated, though? Huh? George Hodel died in 99. In 2003, his annoying asshole of a son, Steve Hodel, published his snitching book titled The Black Dahlia Avenger, a genius for murder. Fuck you, man. In the book, he claims that his father had committed the Black Dahlia murder and other unsolved murders of the day. Steve Hodel says he started his investigation into this, into his father when he saw two photographs in the photo album that resembled old Slippery Liz. However, the Short family insisted the photographs are not her. Steve later learned that one of the girls photographed was a former friend of his father, yet the woman in the second photograph is still unidentified. Fuck, dude, she looks like my grandmother. After reviewing the information in the Black Dahlia Avenger, the head honest deputy DA, Stephen Kay, proclaimed that the Black Dahlia case had finally been solved. However, others noted that Kay formed his conclusion by believing all of Steve Hodel's statements and establishing facts, establishing them as facts, instead of treating them as hunches, which is what they were. Honest Detective Brian Carr was the LAPD officer in charge of the Black Dahlia case during the time of Steve Hodel's bullshit. Carr could not believe Kay's response and stated that if he ever took a case as weak as Steve Hodel's to a prosecutor, he'd be laughed out of the office. Despite mixed opinions on his theory, 
Steve Hodel maintains a very well-curated website where he continues to update information on the Black Dahlia case. Fuck you. I fucking strongly dislike that guy. Yet another theory involved a man named Ed Burns. Now, this is where we get to get into some of the fun stuff. Recall the photographs of Elizabeth Short with her friends and lovers that had been found of that in that trunk that the Herald Express found at the Greyhound station. Police were able to identify most of the people in the photos, but there was one man that the LAPD could not identify. So they labeled him as unidentified man in their reports, short for unidentified man. There was the right uh, the author behind the Black Dahlia solution claims that the LAPD knows who killed Elizabeth Short, but they couldn't hold the murderer for some reason. The writer has spent years deciphering cryptic letters received by the Herald Express and Examiner and believes that he has solved the case. The writer accuses a man named Ed Burns of being responsible for her murder, yet no other sources have ever brought him up as a suspect. He was never mentioned in any FBI reports or accessible LAPD files, and the entirety of the Black Dahlia Solution website is dedicated to explaining what the author believes happened to Elizabeth Short and her killer. And the story is best summarized as follows here. Six-year-old Susan Degnan was kidnapped and murdered in Chicago in January of 46. Her dismembered body parts were soon found in the sewer nearby. William Heidrens was arrested for the murder, and after he, conf- he was arrested for the murder after he confessed to the killing. He was linked to two additional murders from 1945 during trial and was convicted, sentenced to three consecutive life terms in Illinois Penn. According to the author, Elizabeth Short became obsessed with Susan Degnan's murder after it hit Life magazine. She would tell people in bars that she was a reporter from Boston and would give the gruesome details of the murder over and over and over again, kind of like I do with all of you and true crime. While going through this obsessed phase, Elizabeth was still searching for a man to call her husband. Desperately, I I might add. She met a man who the author claims to be Ed Burns, who had USC School of Medicine credits and lived in the Los Angeles Harbor District. The two of them hit it off at first, as two people often do when they're not talking and fucking. He believed she was his beautiful dream girl, as long as she didn't speak and just had sex with him. And she enjoyed having somebody around to give her money and listen to her bullshit. Sounds like a fucking healthy marriage to me. However, he was not attractive. Never mind, unhealthy marriage. Some had even said that he had rabbit-like features. What does that mean? He had a fucking snout? Elizabeth likely did not want to show him off to her friends, later making the man difficult to identify. See, vanity wins again. Elizabeth and this man had rendezvoused twice in Hollywood in November of 46. Both times, they spent the night together in a hotel in downtown L.A. Both morning afters, he would give Elizabeth food and rent money. Jeez, you're a sucker. You're a chump. Before driving her back... Double chump. Driving her back to Hollywood. If only there was a service where they provided a car that would take you to the places that are most inconvenient to get to, like Hollywood or the airport. Oh, wait. Ed was Elizabeth's best listener, also feigning his interest in Elizabeth's obsession for Susan Degnan, the murdered child. However, perhaps old Slippery Liz began to drive him crazy with it. Elizabeth might have coaxed him to drive her out to Limart Park, which was her personal lover's lane, before commenting on the irony of Degnan Boulevard going right by it. Oh, that's fucked up. Ed Burns could have become enraged with Elizabeth, feeling as if she loved and idolized William Herons more than himself. 
he could have tied up Elizabeth, killed her, mutilated her body in the same fashion as Susan Degnan to allow them to live out the twisted interpretation of her fantasy. The guy that drives her to fucking Hollywood and gives her rent money, I think, is a little too soft to fly into a violent rage that she's interested in a fucking true crime story. The author believes that Ed Burns committed suicide on March 15th, 47, exactly two months after Elizabeth's murder. Ed may have killed himself in order to join her in death. But his suicide note reads as follows, so you tell me what you think. To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. Couldn't help myself for that, so this. Sorry, Mary. Oh, man, I don't think so. The author believes this note, along with the other letters received in the Black Dahlia case, all had hidden messages that needed to be deciphered. While this note was not signed, deciphering the letter does show the name Ed Burns, kind of. The deciphering of the Black Dahlia letters in relation to Ed Burns can can be seen all over the internet because it's some of that conspiracy theory reading. When the LAPD discovered the body of Ed Burns after his suicide, they were likely able to identify his body. If the police had followed the message of their note, their next step would have been to revisit the evidence in the, in the Black Dahlia case. If they had looked at the photographs of Elizabeth, her friends, and her lovers from the trunk retrieved from the Greyhound station, they would have been able to connect the dead man to the unidentified man in the, in the photographs with Elizabeth. However, the honest LAPD would not be able to come out to the public and say that the dead man was the Black Dahlia's killer. The case was too convoluted and infamous for such an answer. And it would give the police department a reputation for bad policing, heaven forbid. Little did they know that Rampart still hadn't happened. Fucking wad. Uh, the author proposes that instead, the honest LAPD decided to keep the truth about the murder hidden. And the honest LAPD might have come forward to say that the Black Dahlia case is unsolved when a few members of the department actually know the harsh reality. I think that is a very stupid theory. Because when they, the way that they decoded that fucking letter was just, like, picking notes out that spelled a name. Or not notes, rather. Sorry, I've been recording music a lot, too. Uh, picking letters out that spelled a name. Seemingly at random. So, okay. <sighs> One more. But like I said, everyone was considered a suspect in this case. I was considered a suspect in this case. You were. You probably were, too. As with most of these unsolved cases... They had no fucking idea, and I wish they just left it there. So when people get wrongly accused, a lot of lives get ruined, you know? Oh, man, here's another one that... It, it's her type. Joseph A. Dumais, a 29-year-old soldier stationed at Fort Dix. <laughs> that is Fort Dix. Like, what's... Dick. New Jersey. Oh. Was one of the many false confessors in the Black Dahlia murder. He confessed to the murder just a few weeks after it occurred. Well, let's see. Was he an officer? He was not an officer, so he was not her type. Dumais had originally been a prominent suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder, and his photo had appeared on the front page of the Herald Express in 47. He offered LAPD detectives a 50-page statement on how he had dated Elizabeth. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he offered them that. Uh, dated Elizabeth on January 9th or 10th in 1947. I... Ah, uh, I would pay to read that. Before blacking out for several days, he believed that he had killed Elizabeth during his post-war blackout, which happened quite a bit. However, Dumais had been seen at Fort Dick in New Jersey on January 10th 
through the 17th of 1947, making it impossible for him to have fucked or killed Elizabeth Short. A man can dream, though. The papers stopped covering his story after that, knowing his confession must have been a hoax. A hoax. He popped in the papers again in September of 1948 when he was busted in Evanston, Illinois for stealing a car, and he told the Evanston police that he was held for 83 days in army detention at Fort Dick, being connected to the murder of his wife, Elizabeth Short. Dumai claimed that he had known her only as Eunice Fortune. <sighs> this guy just wants attention. The Evanston police contacted the LAPD and quickly falsified his statement. His confession to the Elizabeth Short murder had already been disproved. His marriage claim to Elizabeth in 1937 was also impossible, as she would have been a 12-year-old at the time. Dumai was permanently cleared of any involvement, much to his dismay, with Elizabeth Short. However, he continued to claim that he killed Elizabeth Short every time he was arrested for various offenses, well into the 1950s. That dude... Blow me. As I, I feel that way with most of these idiots. There have been many theories about the Black Dahlia death and conspiracy theory that surrounds it. A lot of theories, not very many good ones. Um... I heard one recently about the game L.A. Noir by the fucking uh, Rockstar Games that somehow that ties into it. Um, but here's a prominent theory. This is the Degnan theory. Six-year-old Susan Degnan was kidnapped from her home in Chicago, as I said. In January 46, based on an anonymous tip, they found portions of her dismembered body in the sewers nearby. A janitor in the building where they lived was originally arrested. And the Chicago police claimed that they had solved the murder case although he was released several days later with no charges filed. He was later awarded $20,000 on a false arrest in police brutality. Um, William Herons was arrested in 46 for committing a burglary in the Degnan neighborhood. He was interrogated for the Degnan murder before eventually confessing to killing her. He was linked to two additional murders in 1945 during the trial and was convicted and sentenced to three consecutive life terms in Illinois Penn. It was theorized that Elizabeth Short's murder could have ties to this 1946 murder and dissection of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan. LAD, LAPD Captain Honest Donahoe openly expressed that he believed the two murders could have been connected. Elizabeth Short's body was found on Norton Avenue, three squares west of Degnan Boulevard. Degnan was the last name of the girl uh, that was cut in half, or cut into a million pieces. There also seems to be similarities between the written work of the written work for the Degnan payoff note and the letters received in the Black Dahlia case. Both of these works used a mix of uppercase and lowercase letters. For instance, the Degnan note included the sentence, Blaze this for her safety. They also contained a comparative deformed letter P and had a word formed from magazine clippings in the exact same way. Both Suzanne Degnan and Elizabeth Short had been dismembered and drained of blood. Odd. While William Heron served life in jail for Degnan's murder, some suspect that he could also have killed Elizabeth Short. However, this is impossible, as Herons was serving jail time when January 15, 1947 rolled around. Others theorized that Herons was innocent in both murders and that the true serial killer was never convicted. Makes sense. That makes the most sense. Uh, possible police cover-up is another theory. I Agnes Underwood had been with the Herald Express for 12 years when the Black Dahlia case hit. Ray Geese, an LAPD homicide detective lieutenant, 
prodded Agnes in the direction of Elizabeth Short's case while the LAPD continued to search down leads. Agnes covered the interview from the first suspect arrested uh, in the uh, in the original murder, which was Robert Manley. The story that Red tells... The story Red tells his own story of romance with Dahlia ran in the Herald Express, and Agnes got the byline. Agnes doesn't seem like she's a very good author. The morning following the interview with Manley, Agnes was suddenly taken off the case. It would take two days for her to be reassigned to the case. However, she was almost immediately pulled off the case again. This time it was permanent. Agnes was shocked, and she was assigned to work at a city desk instead. After all, she had been one of the first women to hold a city editorship or any position of authority on a major metropolitan daily in the United States. Wow, good for you, Agnes. One theory behind why Agnes had been removed from the Black Dolly case is that she was getting too close to finding out the truth behind the actual murder. If the honest LAPD had been trying to protect the killer, they could have had her promoted to keep her away from closing the case. The theory of a police cover-up was also addressed in 1949 when the Black Dahlia case was still open. The grand jury was convened in early 1949 both to investigate the murder and evaluate the possibility of police corruption and cover-up. 21 jurors did not have a suspect to indict for Elizabeth Short's murder. With the evidence presented, they named Leslie Dillon as a prime suspect. However, he was never indicted. While there was plenty of circumstantial evidence to deem him as the murderer, there were two reasons that he was not brought to trial. The first of which was he had been illegally detained and beaten. And the second was that he had a lack of concrete evidence. In the evidence, in the event of a trial actually occurring, a few witnesses were willing to come forward and say Dylan was in San Francisco during the murders. The LAPD believed these witnesses lacked credibility and did not want them to convince the jury that Dylan was innocent. In 1949, Grand Jury Report found the following concerning police corruption. Deplorable conditions indicating corrupt practices and misconduct by some of the members of law enforcement agencies in the county, alarming increases in the number of murders, especially unsolved ones, jurisdictional disputes and jealousy among law enforcement agencies. To this day, the Grand Jury has never indicted a suspect for the murder. However, the grand jury finding did bring to light an avalanche of police bullshit at the highest ranks. Jealousy and secrecy were common among the honest LAPD at the time, causing case information often to not be passed on properly. The honest LAPD received a shakedown, as I said, and it resulted in the dismissal of the police chief, Clements Horrell, from the LAPD. So who killed her? Short answer, don't know. The murder of Elizabeth Short remains a cold case. A cold case is an unsolved criminal investigation that will remain open for discovery of new evidence. However, as decades have passed since Elizabeth Short's murder, makes chances pretty slim for finding little forensic evidence, if there is any that remains, it's doubtful her murder will ever truly be solved. But what probably happened, while many suspects and multiple theories were addressed in this podcast, that does not mean they were all plausible options for how her murder truly played out. The three most likely suspects, based on the evidence presented on this episode, are Ed Burns, Leslie Dillon, or George Hodel, unfortunately, as much as it pains me to say it. Ed Burns has only been identified and described recently by the author of The Black Dahlia Solution. However, the author claims to have been investigating the case for years and believes to have deciphered the cryptic letters received by the examiner and Herald Express. I think with enough 
time spent not sleeping and smoking drugs, you can decipher just about anything. Uh, the author also describes how the honest LAPD was only able to identify Ed Burns in the photograph with Elizabeth after the officers identified him from his suicide. Uh, they claim that the honest LAPD would not have come out and said a dead man was the Black Dahlia killer when the case was so convoluted and infamous as it could be considered bad policing. So this police cover-up. Leslie Dillon was considered the prime suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder. He would have been brought before the grand jury in 49, but he could not be tried due to police errors. Dillon had been illegally detained, and there had been a lack of concrete evidence trying tying him to the murder. But many people believe it. Hodel was one of Los Angeles District Attorney's original 22 suspects for the murder. Hodel's snitch of a son, Steve Hodel, has come forward with strong evidence to suggest that his father was, in fact, the Black Dahlia killer. Just do your research on that fucking moron. He was also an LAPD officer. Uh, and then there's some other bitch. Janice Knowlton came out believing her father, George Knowlton, was the killer. George Hodel was a prime suspect. George Knowlton had never been a suspect in the LAPD's eyes. Two theories were addressed on... Um, different websites where there was a possibility of a serial killer and a possibility of LAPD corruption cover-up. No one knows. But in terms of a serial killer, Susan Degnan and Elizabeth Short were likely not killed by the same dude. Or dude it. William Herons confessed to the Susan Degnan murder and was arrested before Elizabeth Short was killed. So, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the Black Dahlia case may have been the most infamous unsolved crime for Los Angeles to date. The case has been featured in many books, films, documentaries, and video games. Aside from L.A. Noir, some of these works include The Black Dahlia, The Black Dahlia by James Elroy, Severed in Bad Taste, Jesus Christ, Severed by John Gilmore, Fallen Angel by Troy Taylor, and many others. These works attempt to explain who killed Elizabeth Short and why the case is still considered unsolved today. The address, they address some of the suspects discussed on the part where I discuss suspects, in this podcast, and they also address suspects that were not mentioned at all because they're not worth the effort. Many of these works also address theories that uh, I mentioned a little bit. The possibility of a serial killer, police corruption, so on and so forth. The FBI has 211 public files concerning the Black Dahlia case, yet these files do not provide a review of the investigation into the case. The LAPD had jurisdiction in the Elizabeth Short case, but the LAPD records have not yet been made public. Imagine that. If these records were made public, perhaps somebody would be able to analyze the files and bring Elizabeth to justice. But you can't spell analyze without anal, and the LAPD uh, is not going to let that happen. Until then, many theories and speculations surround the convoluted case of the Dahlia. And that's about all there is on the Black Dahlia. Like I said, one of the most notorious cases... And she looked good. But just frustrating if you really delve into it because there's not... There's no resolution. I hate that shit. I, I'm very interested by this case, but I hate the fact that there's no fucking straight answer at the end of it. It's like I followed the fucking rainbow. Where's my gold? And just the leprechaun's just standing under the rainbow like, Hey, look at my dick! And that's it. So, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this. If you uh, are so inclined, uh, you can message me your theories your conspiracy theories or other, as well as your constructive criticisms of this podcast. So, 
Thank you all for tuning back in. This has been another infuriating episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host, spring Jack, and I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in consistently and listening to me talk. It means a lot that you guys are telling your friends and continuing to listen, and it just guarantees that I will keep doing this for as long as I am able. However, I do have an open-door policy. If you guys dislike anything that I'm doing, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can get in touch with me on Instagram by searching Duke Landis 17 in the search bar. That is Instagram.com slash Duke Landis 17, D-U-K-E-L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7 on Instagram.com. And uh, message me. I will get back to you as soon as I am able to, I promise. Uh, I have really stupid page managers that are in the process of being replaced, but in the event that it's open and not responded to, that was probably them. I apologize. So, I'm sure you guys are not nearly as amused by this as I am, but let's see who the most influential listener was from the last episode. Because I like looking at it, because it strokes my ego. And you guys have been nothing but supportive. Thank you all for the reviews. If you think that I deserve a review, please don't hesitate to leave one on the iTunes store. It actually helps a lot, and... um helps people sponsor the podcast, so on and so forth. Helps people see you. Alright, let's see. The last episode, the most influential person was... I don't get names, I just get locations, so I'm not going to burn your spot. Mountjoy, Pennsylvania. Closely followed by Hubbard, Iowa. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, Temiskaming Shores, Ontario. Hampstead, England, Woodbridge, Virginia, Miami, Florida, Surrey, British Columbia, Scottsdale, Arizona, Red Deer, Alberta. That is the top ten from the last episode. Thank you all very much because I can see the outward expansion from those cities. You are telling people, and it is noticed, and it is greatly appreciated. And way to go, Canada. You guys uh, overtook the United Kingdom for the number two spot of most supportive countries. Believe it or not, I don't have anyone from Turkey. <laughs> not that that matters. But thank you very much. I appreciate each and every one of you guys. Please continue to tell your friends. Please continue to check back in. And if you have any subject matter you want me to cover, do not hesitate to get in touch with me. I uh, genuinely would be flattered. So, thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning back in. This has been my pleasure to cover the Black Dahlia murder. And uh, until next time, stay spooky. Stay spooky.